This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When winds began to howl and waters rose during hurricanes Harvey and Irma, people took to Facebook, Twitter, and other social media sites to share what they were living through and sometimes beg for rescue. A Colorado company helps first responders use those social media posts to deploy resources and send aid where it's needed most. I'm joined by Mark Amon, CEO of the consulting firm, firm Nusura. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Nathan. Uh, have we reached a turning point here? Uh, is social media used more now by the public and emergency responders than in previous disasters? Well, when we think about a turning point, um, I, I think about a long timeline, beginning all the way with Hurricane Katrina, when online media became used for communities to organize their own rescue when needs were not being met immediately by first responders, the state or federal government. And so we've seen a growing adaptation and a creative adaptation of social media and online technologies that's really culminating now with people on rooftops with mobile phones posting to Twitter for rescue. And was it not being used or not being utilized by first responders because they thought it was a fad or, or, or what? Well, I think it's a very difficult thing to control. And when you're in the first responder community, as my colleagues at Nusura and I were uh, with emergency management, homeland security uh, officials, you want to be able to use tools that you can predict and control. And social media is just the opposite of that. And so you want official responses to be uh, official resources to be the things that are used in a response. You want people to call 911. And we still advise people. You need to call 911. But when the critical infrastructure is down and you're on a rooftop and it's your last resort, you're going to use it. So essentially using the, the social media sphere to talk to thousands upon thousands of people saying, hey, I'm stuck here, as opposed to just saying 911, there's an emergency, we can't get to you, we need you to wait. Yeah, and people are not going to wait. They're going to use whatever resources are available to them. And so what we do is we train and prepare responders to operate in that reality because it's not going away. Give me an example of, of where social media was particularly effective in helping victims of Harvey and, and Irma. Well, the most quintessential example in my mind is the nursing home that flooded in uh, Harvey in Texas, where the licensed care facility owner took a photo of these lovely uh, seniors in the facility up to their waist yeah, in water and deep in water yeah. and knitting, uh, waiting for rescue. They had, of course, called 911 and responders were doing everything that they could. But we're talking about unprecedented events here and they just couldn't get the resources out. But she posted it to Twitter, asked for people to amplify it. And they did. And we saw resources get to them right away. And so it, it is immediately a very, very visceral reaction that you have. And it's a powerful tool because you see these people and it's just a very different situation than what we saw in Katrina when uh, people in licensed care facilities were not taken care of like that. And we lost a lot of lives. Because they had no way to really get the word out that they were in need. Exactly. It's not just professional disaster responders gathering the social media information, using it to help people. Some citizens actually have used it to organize their own rescue efforts. Isn't that correct? One of the greatest examples is the Cajun Navy, uh, the unofficial collection of people with flat bottom boats. Scores uh, of boats going into the disaster area. Yeah, lifted trucks. And this is what makes official responders very nervous because we, we can't train those people and we don't want them causing a secondary incident or putting other lives at risk. But um, it's it's been very, very successful. They've adapted a uh, new technology uh, called Zello, which is like a social CB radio app, hmm. uh, which became their central dispatch. And so they were uh, finding where people were on Twitter who were posting for help and then dispatching, you know, unofficial resources. And uh, we even saw officials, county commissioners in Texas, encouraging people to use Zello and call for help. Now, are these groups 
working together with their first responders during these events? Well, they're trying to work officially, but um, I don't think the official response uh, – you know, network is, is ready for that yet. Uh, but what we're trying to do in our uh, training and exercises is prepare them for that because it's going to happen. We're seeing it happen now. And it's really, it's really an outgrowth of what we try to do in emergency management and Homeland Security, which is to get people to take responsibility for their own uh, safety during an emergency. We tell people in preparedness campaigns all the time, you need to be self-sustaining for 72 hours. You need to take care of your family. You need to take care of your neighbors and your community. And so that's what we're seeing people do. And uh, it's, it's not going to go away. So we need to build our training and preparedness programs uh, with that in mind. And, and it's a two-way street here. You see, I see first responders also using Twitter and Facebook and social media to get their word out as well when these disasters are, are bearing down in their communities. Yeah, we used to have to rely on um, broadcast networks, on 24-7 cable news to get the message out. And that is another filter on the message. And so this is an unprecedented opportunity that social media gives responders to um, ask people to be prepared and then to tell them where to go. You know, information is a commodity just like food, water, and shelter in a disaster. And so people will uh, need a way to get that. And so as a responder organization, you have this opportunity to connect directly with the people who need resources and tell them where to go. Are we going to get to the point here where people will simply bypass dialing 911 and simply go to Twitter or Facebook and say, hey, I need help. And whoever can help me should help me. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that um, uh, people saying, starting to talk like that. But I, I don't think that uh, we'll ever be at the point where we're going to bypass official resources. Look, if I'm stuck in my house with my family, I want a fire truck with, um, you know, ALS, Advanced life support paramedics coming for me. I don't want personally the Cajun Navy. But if that's the last resort, then I'll take it. If my house is filling up with water, I'll take it. But um, we always want to encourage people still. 911 is always your first step. You first, second, third, fourth, you know. But uh, when people get desperate, they're going to use whatever means they have. And be self-reliant as well until first responders can, can come to help. Exactly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Mark Aman, CEO of the consulting firm Nusura. The Colorado company helps first responders train to use social media uh, to deploy resources and send aid where it's needed most. Now, uh, the Virgin Islands was hit very heavily uh, during uh, Hurricane Irma. Uh, It was uh, heavily damaged. What reports are you getting from there through traditional channels? Um, And what are you seeing on social media? Well, through traditional channels, um, we saw you know a, a little bit of a, a slowness to respond to report the needs. The U.S. media tends to focus very much on the mainland, where there's a lot more population, and yeah. we understand that. But uh, there are U.S. citizens in the U.S. Virgin Islands that were uh, devastated uh, by Irma, and um, we're seeing reports right now through social media that people are, are a little bit upset. Their their needs aren't being focused on because all the um, attention has been on Florida. And then there's other island nations throughout the Caribbean as well that were absolutely devastated. So we're starting to see more coverage, I think, in the traditional media and more attention given to those uh, the needs of the people on some of those islands, both U.S. territories and not. But um, it's been slow. It's been a little bit slow. And um, there are American citizens who are, are not real thrilled about that. And I should note, you actually trained officials in the U.S. Virgin Islands for, for disaster uh, preparedness and things like that as well. Yeah, earlier this year, we helped support an exercise for the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, which was an earthquake and tsunami 
um, incident, and that is not altogether different from a hurricane. Uh, and so we were able to, to help work with them to use Simulation Deck, our training platform, which is an internet simulator, has you know fake social sites, simulated Twitter, simulated YouTube, simulated blogging sites. And um, in this integrated kind of information environment, they're um, given the opportunity to train in a realistic way to gather information from these online channels and then also distribute information so that people get what they need. Is all of this use of social media, are we, are we putting too much emphasis on it? I mean, that is to say, does the government have a responsibility to maybe beef up its own resources traditionally so that people aren't going to use these other channels? Well, I think in what we're seeing is an unprecedented situation. You know, a Category 5 storm, sustained winds of 185 miles an hour for 37 hours. You know, we always train and prepare for the worst. Um, but it's sometimes hard to imagine uh, what what that really is like. So in our training and exercises, painting that realistic picture of what's worse is what we try to do. We try to demonstrate the human need that um, we discover that need now online. While the storm was literally passing over all of these islands and mm -hmm. mainland Florida, uh, official first responders, for instance, in Miami Beach, can't be out on uh, the roads when the winds hit 40 miles an hour. So we're gaining our situational awareness. We're understanding what's happening on the ground because of things like Snapchat, because of people doing Facebook Live videos. And so it gives us a way to gather that real-time situational awareness that's going to be critical to direct resources where they're most needed. Now, what about after disaster? Do, do you still use those same media channels after to maybe assess damage in places that you can't get to? Exactly. Uh, the damage assessment is always the first step after um, the storm. And uh, you can do a preliminary damage assessment uh, using social media. Uh, we used to do in the old days what we would call a windshield assessment where you drive through the community. Yeah. Um, and now you can do that in real time using social channels. And uh, it, it gives you many, many more data points with fewer resources. What are a couple of the common mistakes that emergency responders make with social media? Well, I think the, the, the mistake used to be that um, I think some in the community just hoped it would go away, uh, that they were going to ride out the fad. Um, but I think now we're seeing people really, really adapt to this. They're integrating it into their planning and training and their uh, exercises. And then during the responses, you know, we have people – now in emergency operations centers who are – their job is to monitor social media, to watch what's going on um, because then they can circulate that information within the emergency operations center and get resources to where people really need them. Uh, so I think uh, the, the, the mistake of ignoring it would be a big one. But I, I think that the lessons from incident after incident have really taught people uh, that we need to be watching. You've seen a lot of natural disasters uh, in your career. Um, we've talked about some of them. Uh, has there been an image or, or, or a story that's particularly struck you about the two hurricanes we just saw here in the United States? I, I think what it is really reminiscent of is the one-two punch that Katrina and Rita packed in 2005. Um, we had Harvey, then Irma, you know, back-to-back -back historic storms. And um, I'm very – thankful that people in Florida and throughout the Caribbean had that lesson from Harvey right before the storm approached. We saw a lot of people evacuate. We saw a lot of people stay. There's always going to be a lot of people who, who mm -hmm. don't uh, mind the mandatory evacuation order. But that one that I, I think, you know, losing 70 lives in Houston, you know, scared people enough to get out of harm's way in Florida. And that leaves more resources 
for first responders uh, to be able to really get to where people really need it. But we're still seeing, we still don't know, you know, down the keys, the, the bridges still aren't open. Um, and uh, we're still going to be discovering throughout the day today and tomorrow what has really happened and, and how badly people were hurt. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mark Amon is CEO of the consulting company Nusura. During Harvey and Irma, many of the tweets and Facebook posts Nusura trained first responders to watch for were sent by cell phones. Well, a Colorado company that dries waterlogged cell phones was in Texas helping in the recovery effort. Late last year, we interviewed Adam Cookson of TechDry, who developed a technology to revive phones, laptops, and other electronics damaged by water. It's a box. It's uh, about three shoe boxes high, and it has a little chamber in it that will hold uh, a phone. And inside the chamber is some metallic beads. You put the phone, sort of, sort of bury it in the beads, and uh, close the lid and push the button. And 30 minutes later, it's dry. The technology is in staple stores across the country. When Hurricane Harvey hit, Cookson and his co-workers drove south. We got together a small team, um, went and got generator water food, prepped a couple of our machines, put it in the truck and hit the road. It turns out plenty of Texans had phones damaged by the water that hobbled the region. Among the places Cookson offered help, an 11,000-person shelter in Houston. We had a line and the machines were running constantly and we ran until late in the night. Uh, I know we could have helped a lot more people if we had more machines. The company has reached out to FEMA and others doing disaster relief in Florida to see if they might offer help there, too. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. People often do a double take when they see Jasmine Colgan of Arvada. Colgan has vitiligo. The disorder causes white blotches on what she calls her otherwise caramel brown skin. She was depressed after her diagnosis. Now, though, it has inspired a project. She's traveled the country to photograph others with vitiligo. Colgan spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Jasmine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This photography project and your website are called Tough Skin. Uh, What inspired that title? Six years ago, I was diagnosed with vitiligo, and I called my grandmother begging for her advice, um, asking her, Grandma, what am I going to look like? What's going to happen to me? And we were talking over the phone, and I could hear her make a slight laugh over the phone, and she said, Jasmine, you got to have tough skin. And it was a couple of weeks later that my grandma became ill and passed away, but after she had passed, it's almost like the spots on my body develop parts So it's almost like she's giving me love or she's kissing my body, letting me know that it's okay to have this skin. You said it's as if the patterns on your skin are are hearts. Yes, heart shapes. I'm pretty lucky to have this skin disorder. Will Will you describe for listeners how it manifests on your body? It started on my fingertips and it started to spread. And I have like a really anxious kind of personality. So I thought that I was just picking at my cuticles and they were just like losing pigment. But I went to a dermatologist and she said, no, it's vitiligo. And that's kind of when it started to skyrocket and it started to spread from my fingertips and my extremities. And it's, I have very few spots on my torso and my middle, but it's um, mostly on the areas that are visible to 
um, society. So it's on your face Correct. and it's on your hands. And my and, feet and my legs and my arms. And it just means that in those portions, your skin is lighter. Yes. Yeah. Now, did your grandmother have vitiligo? Did you call her because she she had been down this road? No, she didn't have vitiligo, but her brother does. Huh. After she passed away, like, uh, we're from a, a cattle farm up in Nebraska, and there was something she kept. It was almost like she put a string around my finger, and she was pulling me to Nebraska. She was telling me, you need to go see something. You need to go see something. And my brother, my younger brother, Eamon, and I went to Nebraska together, and it was unbelievable. I saw these patterns on my great uncle's arms and his face. How did you get the idea to visit others with vitiligo around the country? I felt so alone in Colorado. And I use social media to connect with people on Instagram and Facebook. And it was almost like I had a little family that I was never aware of. It was eye-opening. Like, I couldn't believe it. And I started to connect with people with a simple hello. And people would reply instantaneously almost, too. So it was New York is where I went first. And who did you meet in New York? Who was the first person you photographed? First person I met was Jackie. Um, she has had vitiligo only for a couple of years. But her vitiligo is more drastic than mine. She has her neck, her face. It's just covered in spots. And she's just so beautiful about it. Like she just embraces the way that she walks down the street. And people just turn and look at her and just smile because she has this natural charisma. She's still to this day like one of the favorite, my favorite people that I've met. Have you had something of a transformation? In other words, it sounds like today you very much embrace mm -hmm. uh, vitiligo and, and how it manifests on your body. Yeah. But was it always that way? No. It actually was difficult for the last four years. You know, I'm so grateful that I studied photography in my undergraduate studies. I used the camera to help me document my body. And that was kind of like a way to help heal myself. Um, and you were documenting the change. Correct. The, the, yeah. And writing about it in a journal. And that was advice from my dermatologist. It was the treatments that I would do, which was um, laser therapy. So there was that option. There was also the option of doing a skin graft, which they would pull skin from like my thigh or something and then create little holes in it and stretch it out and then stretch it over the areas that are depigmented. And then there was also topical steroid creams. And I just have found that it was not me. It was going to change what was happening to me. And, you know, like this is happening natural to me. Hmm. And there's no medical disadvantage. Like I'm not dying. I'm not contagious. I'm not – my organs aren't like attacking myself. But um, And so rather than do those treatments, you decided to embrace it. Yeah. I mean, I also did makeup for a little bit, but hmm. it was about lunchtime. Like I put the makeup on and lunchtime I was like rubbing my mouth and – you could see the white. And so it was like, what's the point of hiding it? And so I started to take off the mask and stop wearing makeup. And it really helped me to finally feel centered within myself. I felt free. And I got bored with my skin. And that's when I started to reach out with people with vitiligo. You got bored with your own skin. So you thought, I'm going to study. I'm going to stalk other people. <laughs> so that's what I did. Now, um, I think that um, most people might associate vitiligo with Michael Jackson, right? He's probably like the most famous person who had it. He is. 
Does it occur only in African-Americans? No. It doesn't? Okay. No, vitiligo doesn't discriminate. It will and it can and it will affect anybody. Um, I imagine it might manifest more visibly on people with darker skin because that's the contrast. Absolutely. Uh-huh. You can see a visible contrast in darker people. What does it do to racial identity? Because pigment has determined so much it has. about how people live in this country. Yeah. Does it play with your sense of, of identity? It does now. I feel like it kind of opens my heart to accept others and it opens my mind to be more understanding of others, like what they're going through as well. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Well, no, it's interesting. Um, Tell me if this is off base, but you are half Irish, I understand, and half African-American. Yeah. And here you have a condition that manifests as a blend of dark and light. Yeah. It's, and it, I'm half white, half black. It's like legitimate. Right. Is there, is there a poetry to that? I don't – if there is a poem to this mixture of uh-huh. diversity, I feel like it would be in the spots. Like you could read my poem from my skin. Tell me about more people you met along the way, someone who you just can't get out of your mind. I feel like the little kids with vitiligo – I can't get out of my mind. It's such a huge weight to carry on your shoulders at such a young age. There's a young girl who lives in New Jersey. Her name's Corey. She has organized a run, an annual run in the area for vitiligo to raise awareness. And she just turned 10. And it's just so incredible to see the amount of power that your mind is able to do. If there were a cure for vitiligo... And I again, I, I use that mm-hmm. in quotations almost because, as you say, it doesn't have real health effects for you. It's it's just that it's visible. Mm-hmm. But if there were a, a way to reverse it, would you do it? I wouldn't. If there was a way for me to help other people who wanted that cure, wanted that help, I would help them, push them that way. But I would still stand strong with this skin because I was chosen to be this way. Will your skin continue to change throughout your life? I think so. Okay. Um, it changes. And I've actually started documenting with tattoos on my skin um, the transformation. So I think my tattoo artist and I have determined it's probably one millimeter every six months that I've, you know, depigmented. So I'm looking at your arm right now, mm-hmm. and it's almost as if you've drawn a border yep. between where it's light and where it's dark. Yeah, that's and where so, she tattooed. And so that's likely to change the pigmentation, and yet the tattooed border will remain. It will be a memory of what pattern had manifest. Yeah. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, Yeah. I feel like it's going to become like a a tree ring effect, and I'm excited to see what it's going to be like. So it pushes me to keep going every single day to get to that six-month mark and meet up with Liz and have her tattoo me again. How do you react when people look at you funny? I'm still getting there. You know, I'm still trying to. There was um, even after I went to uh, Florida this summer and I met with 10 individuals in four different cities. And my best friend Shannon and I were uh, walking through Universal Studios. And this was part of the the photography tour around the country, by the way. Yeah, this is part of the the photography tour. And um, we were putting our stuff in the locker. And I just saw this young boy. I mean, he's not that young. He was probably 15, 16. And he kept staring at me. And I waved and smiled. And he kept staring at me. And at that point, 
I get frustrated sometimes. Like, if you are staring at me, come on, man, engage a conversation with me. What's wrong with your skin? Let me educate you. You know, like, right. don't... Right, it's just sort of treating you as almost like an object, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm a human, just like you. Is that what you... What did you say to him? Is um, that what you said to him? No. My friend told me to just not worry about it, and I just, like, put my arms up in the air and just... Took a deep breath and then just walked on to my Harry Potter ride. <laughs> <laughs> Are there times, though, where you say, I, I know you're staring. Do you have any questions for me? Mostly with kids. I feel like kids are easier to approach about that than adults. Actually, I've had a kid come up to me and say, your hands are dirty. Like, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, no, I have white freckles. Or isn't that kind of cool? Like, you have brown freckles. I have white freckles. And then that kind of just, like, goes right over their head. And it's, like, the easiest explanation for them so that they can understand the difference. Mm -hmm. That they're just like, oh, okay, let's go slide on this slide. But it also must be exhausting. Yes. To be constantly reminded by the behavior of others, that they perceive you as different. Yes. Like, because you just, you're just you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you how do you cope with that, I don't know, that sort of constant presence? It's so hard. I just try to just hold my shoulders up and my chin up high, and I just walk with the proud markings of my vitiligo. And even though it's hard at times, I have to remind myself, like, you have to get up, you have to wake up, You have to take a shower. You have to take your dog out. You have to go to school. You have to do these things. You have to go to work. Like, you have to do everything because you are meant to be on this earth. You are meant to educate people on this difference. And it's been an incredible six years. I wouldn't change a spot in my body. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Jasmine Colgan is a master's student in fine arts photography at CU Boulder. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Her project documenting the skin condition vitiligo is called Tough Skin. You can see some of her photos at cprnews.org. The Cassini spacecraft will crash into Saturn on Friday on purpose. It's been orbiting Saturn for 13 years and has sent back data and pictures that revolutionized our understanding of the ringed planet. Among the many Colorado scientists on the Cassini team is Amanda Hendricks. She's with the Planetary Science Institute in Longmont. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. You are speaking to us from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, where the entire Cassini team has gathered for these final days. How many people is that, and what is the mood right now? The mood is celebratory. We're trying to keep it celebratory because there's so much terrific science that Cassini has given us. And yet it's kind of sad. People are pretty sad that uh, the mission is coming to an end. And yet it's been so successful that we really want to uh, celebrate and enjoy each other's company and um, share this time together. It's hundreds of scientists uh, have been involved in this mission over the years. And uh, we just are feeling a little sad that it has to come to an end, but it's time. So so the, the spacecraft has essentially just run out its life, is that right? Well, it uh, it's running low on fuel, and that's one of the main drivers. But also, um, we do need to, what we call, properly dispose of the spacecraft, because even if it's low on fuel, technically we could just leave it in orbit at Saturn uh, for a very long time, but... Um, there would be a small but finite chance that if we left it in orbit at Saturn, it could eventually crash into 
uh, one of the moons. And we know now, thanks to Cassini, that a couple of those moons, Titan and Enceladus, are potentially habitable moons. And so we don't want to destroy our chances of ever potentially detecting life at those moons. So we're going to dispose of the spacecraft uh, responsibly. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. Now, Cassini launched in 1997 and arrived at Saturn seven years later. And you've been working with uh, the team since then. What was the first time that data or or a picture from Cassini came back and, and really just blew your mind? Well... There's been a few times, uh, of course, over the last 20 years. But um, the one of my favorite experiences was even before we got into orbit at Saturn. This was in June of 2004. There's a moon called Phoebe that orbits Saturn really far out. So this was inbound to Saturn orbit insertion. We flew by this moon Phoebe, which had always been kind of mysterious because Voyager had imaged it, um, you know, in 1980 or so. But it was very blurry image and it's a very small moon. And so we targeted it to fly right by it. And we saw it in crystal clear. We saw the craters. We saw that there's fresh water ice on the surface. And that was a remarkable moment to first see that mysterious little object uh, close up and, and in person, really. And it was even a month before you officially arrived at Saturn, around that time, right? It was. It was a couple of weeks before, because that moon orbits so far out. But then on July, uh, in July of uh, 2004, then we actually entered orbit around uh, Saturn. And from there on, we did numerous flybys of all the moons and studied the planet and the rings and so forth. Now, the planet Jupiter is known for its giant storms, like the Big Red Spot, but Saturn uh, wasn't so much. How did Cassini change that understanding about that planet? Well, that's something remarkable about Saturn, is that it has an axial tilt, like the Earth does, and so there's seasons in the Saturn system. It's tilted about 26 degrees, and... um, and so what happens is, is we have stayed in the Saturn system for so long that we can start to see seasonal variations. You know, it takes Saturn almost 30 Earth years to go around the Earth once, or to go around the Sun once. And so, and Cassini being in the system now for the last 13 years has been able to see seasonal variations because we've been there for almost a whole half of a Saturn year. And so um, equinox was in August of 2009, and after that it started to be spring in the north, the northern hemisphere of Saturn, and what we saw shortly thereafter, about a year thereafter, was the eruption of this giant storm in the northern hemisphere, very infrequent, they only happen maybe once every 30 years, and uh, giant storm, it lasted for some seven months and eventually encircled the entire planet. It was really awesome and wonderful to be there to um, be able to monitor and image that storm and all of the lightning that was associated with it and electrical impulses. Um, it, was, it was a neat time and also really um, kind of fortunate that we happened to be there at that time. And that's just one of the, 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 the discoveries that this spacecraft has, has illuminated. Now, now Saturn has 62 moons, and part of Cassini's mission was to learn about them as well, like we've mentioned. Uh, the spacecraft carried a probe that parachuted onto Titan, uh, and that was the first time we landed a craft on a moon. 
other than our own. You mentioned Titan a little bit. Uh, how important was that mission onto the moon's surface? Oh, the Huygens probe was absolutely critical and a, and a wild success, really. That was in January of 2005 that that probe landed on the surface. And it really revolutionized our view of that mysterious moon because Titan has a very thick atmosphere. And so we can't see through it at visible wavelengths with our eyes. So the Cassini orbiter uh, has instruments on it to try to see through it, but and w- which we have done. But there's nothing like actually flying through it, measuring the atmospheric conditions on the way down, imaging the surface and seeing what that surface is actually like. You know, we didn't know for sure if that probe was going to land on liquid or a solid surface, uh, how long it was going to survive, and... Um, and so that was really an important aspect of learning about that important moon. You, you mentioned earlier life uh, possibly or, or something on, on these moons. What does it mean for the possibility of life on these moons? Uh, can you explain that a little bit more, what you found, why it's so important, and, 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 and why continue to research something like that? Well, um, Titan, we now know, uh, thanks to Cassini, has a subsurface ocean. So below an icy shell, there is a liquid ocean layer. Also, Titan has loads of hydrocarbons, which are part of the ingredients potentially for life all over the surface and in the atmosphere. We don't know um, the characteristics of that subsurface ocean yet, but we know that life as we know it requires uh, liquid water as one of the components. So, so that's an interesting Um, possibly habitable place. We also know now, thanks to Cassini, that another moon of of Saturn, which is called Enceladus, a much smaller moon, it's only about 500 kilometers across, it's a little icy moon, and it is actually geologically active. That's one of the really exciting discoveries of the Cassini mission. It's geologically active, and it has uh, a subsurface ocean under its icy surface as well. And we know, because of this geologic activity, um, that what that ocean is made out of, and we have a good idea that it could be habitable. So, you know, if there's if if there's um, the ingredients for life at these moons, we need to go back and study them further and see if we can see any signs of any sort of life as we know it. So, so in our solar system, is this one of the best candidates that you think that this this these moons around Saturn? We're calling them ocean worlds, and there's a few of them in the solar system now. Enceladus is one of the best candidates because it's actually spewing out its ocean right at us. Oh. <laughs> so, so that makes it kind of easy if you wanted to uh, try to fly through that plume of gas and ice particles and try to sample it and see if there's any, uh, you know, uh, microbes or bugs in there. Um, but there's other worlds in the solar system uh, besides Enceladus and Titan, Jupiter has several moons that are ocean worlds, and uh, Europa is one of them, and there's a future mission to go to Europa uh, to orbit Jupiter and study Europa's habitability. And so there's a lot of possibilities now to try to really study these ocean worlds and find out how habitable they are and whether there's any signs of life. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking about the final days of the Cassini spacecraft with Amanda Hendricks. 
She's a co-investigator on Cassini's Ultraviolet Imaging Spectrograph, or UVIS, which was built and run by the University of Colorado. On Friday, Cassini will crash on purpose into Saturn, essentially burn up in the atmosphere. Now, the original plan was not to have that happen to Cassini. The plan was set in motion because, of course, the potential life. Um, But let's talk about as it actually is, you know, burning up in the atmosphere, going into the atmosphere of Saturn. What are you hoping to learn in the final hours? Well, let me just say also, though, that these uh, final orbits are really critical. Mm. You know, we've gotten much closer to the planet and the rings than we ever have before. And so Since April, uh, we've executed now 22 orbits where we go in between the rings, the, uh, you know, Saturn's famous rings, in between the innermost edge of those rings and the top of the uh, atmosphere of the planet. And so it's really kind of like threading a needle. um, And it's been kind of risky, but it's all worked out okay. And we've done that 22 times. And just being that close into the planet allows us to sense more carefully what the interior of the planet is like. Uh, We can sense what the magnetic field is like. We can also do a lot more critical measurements of the rings. You know, one big question uh, that we have never really known is, how old are those rings? How long have they been there? Have they been there since Saturn was formed? Or were they formed perhaps from the breakup of some icy moon only a few million years ago? Um, And that's that's a basic question that uh, Cassini should be able to answer by getting very in uh, very close to the planet. And what we do is we sense the pull of the gravity of the planet, um, and we can subtract out the pull of the rings themselves from the pull of the planet and thereby get the mass of the rings. By understanding the mass of the rings, that can tell us, well, you know, was it... Uh, are they very um, massive and therefore probably older, or are they less massive and therefore probably significantly younger? So these whole past few months have been really important for learning about the planet and the rings and the um, the environment there, therein. Now on Friday morning early, um, we will we have now already as of Monday we did a distant Titan flyby that helps us adjust the trajectory of the spacecraft, the path of Cassini, Mm -hmm. so that it will impact the planet uh, early Friday morning. And what will happen is... um, So so you're setting it up for its demise, essentially. Exactly, exactly. We're setting it up so that the closest point to the planet is uh, within one radius, (laughs) so that it's actually will impact the planet. And, um, And so instruments will be on... Um, the most important thing, though, is that we want to be able to keep the antenna of Cassini pointed at Earth for as long as we can. And that will tell us that Cassini is still alive. We will transmit some data, but the most important thing is the, the signal to tell us that the spacecraft is still alive. And we don't expect it to last very long. So um, will it essentially just, it'll just evaporate and that's it? There'll be a ping and, and then it's gone? Right. Well, what will probably happen is that the atmospheric drag will become so great that the that there'll be a torque on the spacecraft and we'll lose lock with that antenna. So oh. the antenna will uh, start pointing away from Earth and we won't have the signal anymore. Now, and at that point, also, there'll be so much drag on the spacecraft that 
parts will probably start falling off and it'll start breaking up and it'll actually be a lot like a meteor in the atmosphere of the planet. Now, now what happens when Cassini does this? Will, will we be able to see anything back on Earth? Will you be able to tell that it's happening for, for let's say, everyday people? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably not. We expect that Saturn is so big, and actually, even though Cassini is very special to us all, it's actually quite small. Um, the energy involved in this impact is relatively small um, compared to the size of the planet. Um, we will be looking. A lot of uh, astronomers on on Earth, on the ground, will be looking. Hubble Space Telescope will be looking to see, do we see any um, flash, for instance, um, but as I said, the main, the main way that we will know that Cassini is over, is gone, is that, um, that loss of signal. And then it will be over. What yeah. are your reflections as you watch this thing unfold on Friday? <clears throat> it's really strange, and it does feel sad. Um, but the important thing is, is that even if the Cassini spacecraft will be gone on Friday morning, there's so much data. You know, it's the Cassini mission is much more um, than the spacecraft itself. It's about the data uh, that Cassini has given us over the last 13 years. That there's I'm so sure much... you'll, uh, you'll be pouring over. Oh, over. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Amanda Hedricks of the Planetary Science Institute in Longmont is a co-investigator on the Cassini UVIS instrument, which was built and run by scientists at the University of Colorado. Cassini will burn up in Saturn's atmosphere this Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Pueblo's Central and Centennial High Schools might have the oldest high school football rivalry in the West since 1892. And for the last 67 years, the Centennial Bulldogs and the Central Wildcats have battled on the gridiron to claim a special trophy known simply as the Bell. It's from a locomotive that long ago delivered coal to Pueblo's giant CF&I steel mill, And depending on who wins, the bell is painted red for Centennial or blue for Central. This year's game is Friday evening, and the Denver Post says the game at Pueblo's 15,000-seat Dutch Clark Stadium draws more fans than big school state championship games at Sports Authority Field in Denver. Puebloan Frank Zerfus played halfback for Central in the first bell game in 1950. The Central-Centennial game was always a big game. After that bell was donated, uh, it became even bigger. Even if over the years, when one team wasn't too good or both teams weren't too good, they still fill up that stadium. You just see, like, the whole field just, like, transforms. It's, like, completely different for bell game. It's just, like, one side is completely blue and the other side is completely red. It's loud and the whole city of Pueblo is there and it just feels different. You kind of just feel the excitement in the air, and you just feel just the tension between the two teams. And it's just like everybody is so excited just walking into the game, and you can almost taste it in the air. That's Central High junior Sophia Marcuson de Prince. She's among the students from both schools who created a new exhibit about the Bell game that just opened at the El Pueblo History Museum. 
Centennial High senior Jacob Lewis says there are lots of interesting stories from the past, like why there weren't any high school football games in Pueblo between 1908 and 1921. The school board ended up banning football because kids wouldn't wear pads because they used to say that you were basically a sissy if you wore pads. There was also kind of a riot that broke out in the 1907 game that one kid kind of got punched and then both sides went at it, including fans. And so the school board was like, that's it. The students even took some lockers from the Centennial coach's office to put in the exhibit. But these aren't just any lockers. They were installed in the office decades ago by coach Jim Pops Grieve. He'd obtained them in a pretty non-traditional way from the original Centennial High School. The night before the old building was actually torn down, he took like five or six football kids, and then they broke in and actually stole two sets of three of the lockers. And I mean, these lockers have been in that building since the 1920s. The late Grieve was the Bulldogs' head coach in the 60s and 70s. And Lewis says for the exhibit, they filled the locker with his game day clothes. So we have his Go Big Red tie. We have his fedora that he used to wear. We have his practice shorts. We have a couple play cards. So anybody who played football for him or even just knew him, they'll just take one look and say, that's Coach Greaves' lockers. The central student curators selected a helmet that belonged to a legendary quarterback, Earl Harry Dutch Clark. He played for the Wildcats in the 20s and eventually went on to be an NFL Hall of Famer for the Detroit Lions. Marcus and DePrince mentions a Time magazine story that talks about the helmet. The Dutch Clark helmet is really interesting. It's like leather and it just it looks really old and in the time magazine article it compares it to like a roman gladiator helmet which it it looks very similar to that things get pretty heated up at the two schools during bell week the whole week before the big game the students say there are plenty of traditions like this one called dress down thursday you get a central shirt or a blue shirt. Some girls actually go find old cheerleading uniforms and just like rip them up and everything and throw some red paint on it, stuff like that. We get like centennial shirts and tear them up. You got like the blue under the red and, you know, just kind of like show centennial who's boss, I guess. But this year, both schools got together at the museum to launch Bell Week with a pep rally led by a school district staffer. I just want to tell you that the hardest part about tonight for me was trying to decide what to wear, right? So I went with a blue suit, a red tie, and of course a classic hat symbolic of uh, the legendary coach of Centennial, Coach Jim Green. So let's give it up for Marcus and DePrince says there's something pretty special about the exhibit that she hopes others will see too. We have a history and it's the things that you don't necessarily consider to be part of history. You just consider it to be like part of your daily life, I guess. Just to see that like this is unique. This is what makes Pueblo Pueblo. It's what makes us special and that we should be proud about it. And we should show it off to the world just to show exactly what Pueblo is. Pueblo's Bell Game is this Friday evening. The Bell Rings exhibit at the El Pueblo Museum runs through Super Bowl Sunday. We post a link to oral histories about the Bell Game and a video from last year's game at cprnews.org. Well, earlier this year, we invited a small group of Coloradans to dinner. Coloradans with different political views who might not normally get together. 
we wanted to see if they could find common ground in a series we call Breaking Bread. One of our guests was Annette Gonzalez, and she lives in public housing on the south side of Pueblo. Gonzalez voted for Trump because she felt like his business experience could help the country. She's medically retired after raising six kids, but now she's raising several of her grandchildren on her own. Yeah, I don't get to be retired and lay, lay in bed until 10 o'clock every morning. <laughs> I get up and I get going, no matter how I feel. I mean, if you're going to be a parent, you have to show up for the job every day. Gonzalez and the others will be back next week to share how their experiences have shaped what they believe and to seek common ground. They'll be joined by a special guest, a moderator who worked with Congress. Plus, we'll have an exercise you can try at home to see if you can find common ground with someone you don't typically agree with. Tune in to Breaking Bread Part 2 next week. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is CPR News. Have a good day.